This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dutch historian Rutger Bregman about his new book, Utopia for Realists. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. And it's my great pleasure to have with me uh, historian Rutger Bregman, who's written a book called Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There. It's published by Bloomsbury and Rutger is in Melbourne for the Melbourne Writers' Festival. And uh, we're very pleased to have him uh, with us now in the studio. Hi, Rutger. Hi there. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. It's That's really good. great to be here in Melbourne. Yeah, no, it's good to have you. We're very cultural, or we like to think we are. So, <laughs> the the Melbourne Writers Festival tends to be one of the highlights, the calendar mm-hmm. highlights. And uh, I know you gave a lecture, or you were in conversation with Van Badham about your book just recently. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I'm really pleased and excited to go through this book because it raises some important ideas and it is also about, as you say, creating the space to have these ideas, big ideas, Mm -hmm. um, and to not be constrained by the ideologies of the time and to to create a new utopia because the old version is tired and now no longer applicable. Mm -hmm. So I guess you set the scene as a historian, you give a lot of context around the idea of utopia. And I mean, many of our listeners will know of Thomas More's utopia, uh, but there are also other kind of versions and and you reference the medieval Mm -hmm. idea of utopia and then bring bring it back uh, throughout the book, The Land of Plenty. Could you share with us more about this historical context of utopia and the concept that it did have and the meaning it had for others in the past? Sure, sure. Well, the title of the book is Utopia for Realists. So what I mean with that is that utopia can actually become real and it has become real many, many times in the past. Um, If you look at all the milestones of civilization, stuff that we are used to right now, uh, democracy, equal rights for men and women, the end of slavery, uh, the welfare state, uh, all these ideas, institutions were completely ludicrous, crazy ones. So there was there was one time when a person came up with these ideas and people said, well, that's unreasonable. We can't pay for that. That's a really ridiculous idea. Uh, I think that's how progress always begins. It starts with completely crazy ideas. So my book is full of crazy ideas and things that may seem, well, unrealistic right now, but I think they can be realistic in the future. Yes, we're looking at a huge history here and you talk about uh, how (laughs) humans were always impoverished or they were deeply impoverished Mm -hmm. for a very long time and it was only in the the late uh, 1800s that we saw a big shift occur and we have had a great deal of prosperity Mm -hmm. in the meantime which we now in the developed uh, world take for granted quite a great deal. And one of the areas that you talk about or write about in the book is how um, there was this assumption that if we uh, became more prosperous, uh, we would be ending up working a great deal less. Mm-hmm. However, we seem to work more and consume more mm-hmm. and have far less leisure time and that it's socially less acceptable to have leisure time than it did, uh, say, in the 19th Mm -hmm. century when those who were very well off, that was a a status symbol to have leisure time. That crazy idea that you have about working way less than we are right now, could Mm -hmm. you share with us what that idea is for you Mm -hmm. and how you think that could actually be a reality? It's pretty interesting that if you look at the history of the 20th century, that up until the 1970s, 
so many of the greatest thinkers all believe that we would be working less and less and less. All the economists, all the sociologists, all the philosophers thought that the great challenge of the future was going to be boredom. Like, what are we going to do with all that time when the robots have taken all our jobs and we, we get richer and richer and richer? You know, the British economist John Maynard Keynes, he wrote an essay in 1930 uh, and where he predicted that we would have a 15-hour work week in 2030. Now, that might seem crazy, but, I mean, up until 1980, I mean, it, it was true. The work week was shrinking and shrinking. It's only fairly recently that we've been working more and more. Now, I think there are two explanations for that. The first one is obviously consumerism. So we keep on using money we don't have to buy stuff we don't need, to impress people we don't like. So that's that's happening a lot. Uh, but probably the most important reason is that capitalism is just capitalism is, ex is extraordinary at coming up with new jobs that really don't need to exist. Mm, so according to some recent recent polls, in many developed countries, about a third of all jobs that we have right now are completely useless. And that's people themselves saying it about their own jobs. Yes. Well, you reference a survey from the Harvard Business Review uh, of 12,000 professionals and half of which in that sample size said they felt their job had no meaning and significance. Yeah. I'm sure many people listening might be questioning the importance of their role, just how much they're contributing to the betterment of society, yeah. perhaps. And you do reference some of those, as has been termed, bullshit jobs mm -hmm. that people feel is uh, quite meaningless. Yeah. Not only is it a perception that it's meaningless, but that it really does it actually add that much value? Mm -hmm. And is it, as you say, is it creating wealth or just shifting wealth around? Mm -hmm. I found that a really interesting and important point that you made around the financial industry. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is really bizarre is that, I mean, the better your resume is, the higher your salary is, the bigger the chance that you have a bullshit job. Right, so that's fascinating. Yeah. It's it's not the teachers or the garbage collectors or the nurses that say, you know, my job doesn't read, really add anything of value. You, you never hear that. It's mostly consultants, corporate lawyers, bankers, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, mm. who uh, who often admit of their own jobs that they don't really add anything. Um, and and one great way to find out whether a job is useful or not is just to go on strike. Now, we've seen throughout history that every time that garbage collectors or nurses uh, or teachers go on strike, well, that's a disaster. You know, we really can't do without these jobs. Uh, but I found only one example in all of world history of bankers going on strike. It was mm. in Ireland in 1970. The strike lasted for six months <laughs> and the economy just kept growing. You know, it yeah. didn't make much of a difference. It's quite amazing, but not that surprising when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it? a huge part of the financial sector is not about producing wealth anymore. It's about taking wealth of others, yeah. basically. And if you don't believe me saying that, I mean, the International Monetary Fund, like neoliberal institutions are saying pretty much the same thing right now. Yeah. And one of the ideas or solutions there you bring up is taxation. And uh, if you tax, um, you know, for example, the transferring of you know, fast trading stocks, yeah. that that would reduce the amount of superfluous trading and shifting of wealth that mm -hmm. is quite meaningless and useless for, you know, the average person. Exactly. I think it's one of the great tragedies of our time that we are wasting so much talent and energy of, of like our smartest and most ambitious young people, you know, on, on crap that is being mm. produced in either Silicon Valley or on Wall Street, for example. I mean, there's a great quote from a Mathwis who, who worked at Facebook and said that the greatest minds of my generation are thinking about how to make people click on ads. 
And it doesn't have to be this way. You know, we can create a different kind of economy with different incentives where people actually do something that they care about that mm. do, does contribute to the common good. Mm. How do you change that conversation? Because this is happening at tertiary education institutions mm-hmm. uh, where people going to university, they're deterred from studying an arts or humanities de- uh, degree, for example, in order to be doing something more like accounting or law or mm-hmm. business or commerce because that, or STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, because that's what's needed in the, the 21st century. Yeah. Um, and it seems like a very simplistic and reductive and... Um, it pushes people into areas that they really would find meaningless or useless. How yeah, do true, we true. Um, redefine what we need for the 21st century mm-hmm. in terms of the skills and jobs and for it not to just be such a one-sided thing like mm-hmm. arts and humanities is superfluous and science, technology yeah. and engineering is, you know, deified. Mm-hmm. I think we just have to go back to very, very basic questions. So, for example, let's go back to the question, what is work or who are the real wealth creators? What is progress? Now, if you'd ask a regular politician, he'd say, well, progress is e- economic growth. And economic growth, the growth of GDP, gross domestic product. Now, then, if you look at the history of that concept, it was invented by a Russian-American economist, Simon Kuznets, who sat back in the 1930s when he presented GDP, his concept of GDP to Congress. He said, don't ever use this as a measure of progress, <laughs> because it's not. And if you do, then at least subtract all military spending, all spending, you know, all, the whole financial sector, mm. all spending on advertising, because that doesn't contribute anything of value, according to Kuznets. Um, I think that's really where it starts. My definition of work or wealth creators would be, those are the people that make the world a little bit more interesting, right? Make it a little bit more beautiful, that, that, uh, and, and they can define it for themselves. Um, now, if we would introduce something like a universal basic income, which is one of the main ideas in the book, um, everyone can decide for themselves what they want to do with their lives and mm. how they want to contribute. And I think in that scenario, the wages of the jobs that we have will much better reflect the social value of those jobs. Mm. And we will get to that in just a minute. You put a quote at the top of one of the chapter titles from Buckminster Fuller, who mm-hmm. I feel is quite a underrecognized thinker mm-hmm. <laughs> from the 20th century. So I was very pleased to see it there. But it, it brings us to just what we're saying now. And I'll just read it out. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them they had to earn a living. Mm-hmm. Now, the, as you say, that ties directly into this idea of earning a living wage, feeling secure enough to be able to have mm-hmm. a long-term view and uh, and to be able to make stable decisions as to what drives you as a person rather than immediately in the short term how you can keep a roof over your head. And, uh, and that is one of those big ideas you mm-hmm. have is this universal basic income. So let's come to that. You have some excellent case studies in there. There was one uh, which was really fascinating to me in Canada, mm-hmm. which I'd love for for you to share because it just sounds like there are so many reasons why things went awry at the end but at the beginning it's it seemed like what an amazing you know flagship idea of any country it is a completely bizarre history i mean not many people know that at the end of the 60s almost everyone in both canada and the u.s believed that some form of basic income was going to be implemented sooner rather than later Mm. i mean the democrats were in favor of it the republicans were in favor of of it richard nixon of all people actually had a modest basic income that got through 
the House of Representatives twice and it was killed by the, in the Senate by the left because they wanted a higher basic income. And indeed, we also had lots of fascinating trials of basic income. And, and one of those was in a small town called Dauphin in, in, in Canada. Uh, and this was called the town with no poverty because they completely eradicate poverty there. As soon as you fell below the poverty line, your income was automatically topped up. The experiment lasted for four years. Lots of anthropologists, economists, sociologists, they all descended on the town, did their research, you know, collected a lot of data, did interviews, etc. But after four years, there was a new government that came into power and they said, this is a really weird experiment. You're actually giving money just to people. Stop this at once. And so there was no money left mm. to do the analysis. And it had all, they all had to put it away in 2,000 boxes. And for 25 years... It was just in the archives. Every, everyone had forgotten about it. And, and just 10 years ago, a um, Canadian professor heard about it. Her name is Evelyn Forger. Uh, she did the research, did the analysis, and discovered that the experiment had been a huge success. Mm. Uh, crime went down. Kids performed much better in school. Healthcare costs uh, declined by 8.5%. Domestic violence were down, was down. Mental health complaints were down. It's really incredible. And no, it was not true that people turned out to be massively lazy. They mm. did not waste their money on alcohol or drugs. There was an explosion of creativity going on there. And this is what we find time and time again in all these basic income experiments. And most fascinating, actually, that, that's, that's what we learned from another experiment in the 90s in the US, is that actually this basic income pays for itself. Because, you know, you spend so much less money on, on healthcare and, and, and crime and, and, you know, kids, kids who are not doing very well in school, is that actually those savings are bigger than the basic income itself. Mm. Um, so in that sense, it is literally free money. And I've also found it interesting and, and very revealing in an Australian context where our federal governments have very much demonised impoverished people, particularly those receiving welfare, yeah. that you talk about the infrastructure that surrounds these people, the caseworkers who try yeah. and get people work that actually really probably prevent them from getting a job that they would want um, and it would take a, a great deal longer than if they'd just gone and done it themselves with this kind of plan in place. I mean, it, that is one of those arguments that is probably the strongest, the affordability argument, because I'm not sure what it's like in... Um, the Netherlands, but in Australia, I'm, there's a huge, massive infrastructure that is extremely inefficient. It is exactly the same in Holland and it's exactly the same in the UK. It's, all, yeah. it's, it's the same all over the world. We've seen a huge rise of workfare and, and, you know, incredibly large bureaucratic industry of all kind of care workers and bureaucrats who are all supposed to help the poor because we all assume that there's something wrong with the poor, that, you know, we need to teach them something or anything. It's simply not the case, you know. If we look at the most recent scientific evidence, you know, in, in the best peer-reviewed journals, then the overwhelming conclusion is that poverty is not a lack of character. It is just a lack of cash. And how do you solve a lack of cash? Well, that's pretty easy, right? Mm. You just give cash. Um, there's, a, there's one experiment that I talk about in the book that happened in India, uh, an experiment with sugarcane farmers. They found out that they got 60% of their annual income all at once, right after the harvest. So this means that these farmers are relatively poor one part of the year and rich the other. Now, what the researchers did was give them an IQ test before and after the harvest. The difference was 14 points of IQ. So it's really the context of poverty 
that 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 numbs you and 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 makes sure that you can only think about the short term. Now, if we completely eradicate poverty, that means that the poor will get an additional fourteen points of IQ, mm. right? That I mean, the, this effect is is similar to the effects of alcoholism or or not having slept for a full night. I mean, it's huge, yeah. and that is the reason that the poor make so many poor decisions. All of us would make poor decisions if we are in poverty, and that's exactly the reason why we need to eradicate it eradicated and get rid of the whole industry of paternalists. Yeah. And that brings us to that discussion around the scarcity mentality um, and that scarcity is all consuming. You say you can't take a break from poverty. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people really don't understand that until they've been in that position to Mm -hmm. understand just how debilitating and like a prison it could be mentally. Um, So we've looked at some of those examples or those case studies. It is quite amazing to think that 80% apparently of Americans were for some kind of universal basic income. Mm -hmm. How do we change that population consensus Mm -hmm. around an idea of the universal basic income? Because Mm -hmm. at the moment, um, I'm not sure what the response you've received has been, but you get those typical arguments about, oh, well, you know, it's just completely idealistic. It's Mm -hmm. just so, you know, beyond the realm of possibility. Mm -hmm. How would we make it work? How would we make it work so that uh, people who, you know, have a disability Mm -hmm. receive enough income and, uh, you know, create tears? Everyone kind of gets bogged down in those practicalities and the details. And so you never see it move forward. How do you do that, get past it? Well, let's first recognize that just four or five years ago, Basic income was a completely forgotten subject, and now it's everywhere. Finland has started an experiment. Canada has just announced a big experiment. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are interested. In my country, Holland, there are 20 cities that want to start an experiment uh, right now. So I feel a lot less lonely than just a few years ago. And what I also believe is that there are millions of people around the globe, especially after 2016, you know, with Brexit and the rise of Donald Trump, millions of people are yearning for an alternative are completely fed up with the status quo. So there's an incredible amount of political energy out there. And someone just has to pick it up and tell a new story that actually gives people hope and is also built on a completely different image of human nature, right? I believe that most people are pretty nice. Most people are creative. Most people want to do something with their lives and don't have to be told by the market or the government, you know, whatever they have to do. Most people have, have, uh, want to contribute to our society. And that's, that's what I believe that progressives and, and the left need to do. I mean, the left these days, it only knows what it's against, right? It's against austerity, against the establishment, against homophobia, against racism, against Trump. And it gives these only like the Trumps of the world, it gives them the stage all the time. Talk about what you want. Talk about the future you want. You know, talk about mm. your ideas, your alternatives, and develop yeah. a re- story around that. Use the language of hope. Use the language of progress, of meritocracy, of innovation, et- innovation, etc. Mm. That's what I'm trying to do in my book. Well, and you talk about politics with a capital P, which mm-hmm. is very different from the undercaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that that is one of the issues in Australia is that the left have had to become very centrist, whereas the Labor Party have had to become. Well, they or perceive. They They perceive it as a necessary reason or a necessary method to Mm -hmm. remain electable, basically, that social democracy was part of their platform and in their manifesto, and now that's pretty much the most unpopular, unfashionable thing to possibly suggest. But look at what happened in the UK. 
just a few months ago. Yeah. I mean, with the elections, for years and years, social democrats and, and, and people in the Labour Party said exactly the same thing. Like, we can't be too radical or, we, you know, we'll be unelectable. Actually, what happened is is that Corbyn did really, really well. I mean, he had the best performance of the Labour Party since 1946, you know, in terms of how many seats he won. Um, but so the, the, the problem all this time was not that Labour was too radical. It was not radical enough, right? It didn't really have a proper story that mm. people could believe in. And I think that's exactly the same here in Australia. If you really want to change a country, you need to come up with with ideas that are on the fringes of, of society. And and to be honest, I, I I don't think that ever starts in places like Washington or Westminster or Canberra. Um doesn't start there. You know, it's it just starts in with with people on the fringes of society, on the fringes of the debate, who come up with these new crazy ideas. And then it gradually moves towards the center. That's exactly what has been happening with basic income in the past five years. Mm. But also as a historian I find um, your arguments more compelling because they're showing that across history there's precedent for this to work Mm -hmm. and that these crazy ideas can become a reality and that we really just need to look to history to see what's possible. Exactly. That's something that's quite unique. I think for people who aren't historians, they may not see history as being that relevant and that immediate. But I think that's what this book does offer. It it is probably one of the biggest lessons of history that Mm. things can be different. There's nothing natural about the way we've structured our society and economy right now. It can all change yeah. for the better or for the worse. It's not inevitable. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, a great point is the GDP uh, example <laughs> that it was new and it's been eight, it's 80 years old. Yeah, yeah. That's a new thing. But also coming back to working less, there was one thing that I really liked was you said recently a friend asked me, what does working less actually solve? And you flipped that question and said, is there anything that working less does not solve. That, for me, when I then looked at your rationale, was Mm -hmm. very compelling. Could you share with us some of those arguments that you put forward? Well, the benefits of a shorter paid work week are pretty, pretty long. So I'm not saying we should work less so that we can sit on the couch and watch Netflix all day. I think we should devote more time to things that are really important, you know, caring for our kids, caring for our elderly, volunteers' work, investing in our local communities, etc. Incredibly important work that historically, by the way, has mainly been done by women. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Um, the benefits of, you know, having a shorter paid work week and consuming less crap that we don't need. I mean, let's just first think about the biggest challenge of the future, which is climate change. I mean, we shouldn't only talk about solar cells and technology. I mean, that's a big part of the conversation. Uh, But we should also talk about another way of living our lives. So I think that a shorter working week is probably the most powerful instrument we've got in the fight against climate change. Uh, Now, just look at the epidemic of stress and burnouts and and uh, work-related depressions that we've seen uh, on the rise since the 1990s. Again, a shorter working week will, will help a lot here. If we look at inequality, we also know that it's actually the countries with the longest working weeks where inequality is highest. And it makes sense because, um, you know, if you, are, if you have a very high uh, 
per hour wage, I mean, it just becomes more expensive to to work less, right? Mm. So there are incentives to work more if inequality is higher. Uh, it, like pretty much all the big issues are, are connected to mm. this. Well, um, from my perspective, I think your point about gender equality is very compelling and it's something yeah. that uh, when we have these discussions about why aren't there more women in leadership, you know, why are they getting paid less, all these arguments, it's largely, it always for me, comes back to men and women in their couple situations when they have children, if they have children, Mm -hmm. uh, having such an unequal division of labour. And that is perpetuated by policies that governments and businesses put in place that suggest that there's a primary carer and a secondary carer. Clearly, both people contributed to the situation to create the child. Um, You know, you can just look at different countries. I mean, many Scandinavian countries, they've got pretty long paternity leave and people suddenly make very different decisions. So again, there's nothing natural about all of this. No. So I'm really interested to see where we can take this book and the ideas within it. And if in your time here in Australia, you've made any observations, because it's often the, mm-hmm. the case when you're coming from another country and you're in another's, uh, you see some things that others don't see. Is there anything that you have picked up on while you're here? Oh, well, to be honest, you know, in the, the past few months, I've been to Japan, I've been to Spain, to the US and, and, and to the UK. And what really strikes me are the similarities, mm. you know, that pretty much the discussions are, are the same everywhere. Um, it's it's people yearning for new ideas, people who are completely fed up with their uh, with their working hours and, and are uh, often worried about their meaningless jobs and that they want to devote more time to stuff that they really care about. It's pretty much the same everywhere. Um, so 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 in that sense, I think this, the the way forward is also the same. Mm. What we need is probably two things. So we need that radical vision, a clear vision. We need to to be able to stay on message, communi- communicate that to the public all the time. Uh, like this is the much better society that we envision, where there's much more individual freedom, where you can devote much more time to stuff that you love. Um, that's important. But the th- second thing we need is to have a pretty practical plan of what you can do tomorrow. And in that sense, I, I, I'm really excited about all these basic income experiments. I mean, everyone is knows a bit, a little bit about their own local situation uh, or the, the particular city that they live in. What I experienced in Holland is that when I wrote my book first in 2014, it was pretty much ignored on the national level. So no national politicians or national media were interested in it. But the local level, people read it and said, you know, can I... Can't, why can't we just do this here? Mm. So they started petitioning their municipality or their local politicians, and now 20 cities want to start that experiment. That's how it, that's how it works. Yeah. So people have much, much more power than they realize. Mm. They just need to recognize the idealism in each other, and they need to realize that they are not alone. There are so many more people out there who, <laughs> who, who, who are open to these idea, new ideas. Mm. And, and, oh, and one final thing, yes. stop watching television. Because I mean, the news—it just the news is yeah. always about exceptions, you know, things that go wrong, corruption, crises, terrorism. So at the end of the day, if you watch a lot of the news, you know exactly how the world doesn't work. So really, that's probably the first important step: throw mm. your television out of the window. Yes, couldn't agree more. <laughs> I only recently acquired one, and it was a gift. But I only watched the football on it, so that's my. Oh, that's all right. That's Football's my right. reason. Yeah. yeah, like it's got it's totally removed from anything to do with politics. Mm-hmm. Thank God. Just finally, uh, Rutger, 
When you wrote this book, you clearly had an aim in mind. It wasn't just for self-indulgences or anything. You have a clear mm-hmm. passion to, mm-hmm. to change things. What's next for you in terms of continuing this discussion mm-hmm. and opening it up more and, and following these uh, studies around universal basic income? What are you hoping to do in the future? Well, let's be honest. I mean, I was incredibly lucky that I got the chance when I was already pretty young, like 25 years old, that I uh, got a job at a journal, uh, Dutch journalism platform that basically, well, they gave me a basic income and said, write about whatever you want. Mm. And then, you know, suddenly a lot of good can come out of that if you're allowed to pursue your own passions. So that's what I'm, I'm going to continue doing. I'm working on my next book and uh, touring around with this book. And I believe that everyone has a different role to play in this movement. You know, I'm a writer. I think I'm good at that. <laughs> and uh, I'll keep continuing doing that. But it's been amazing to see that, for example, a few weeks ago, I, I met a woman, in, um, a woman in, in Vancouver who read one of the um, stories in a book about a, an experiment in London where they ca- gave unconditional cash to uh, 13 homeless men, 3,000 pounds was another amazing success. You know, the men used the money really well and in the end turned out that the the organization saved a lot of money as well because it's actually more expensive to let people live on the streets than to help them off it. Mm. Even the economist at that point said, you know, the, the, the magazine, the economist wrote, the best way to spend money on the homeless might be just to give it to them. Um, <laughs> and... This uh, woman from Vancouver read the story and she was so inspired that she decided, you know, I want to I start another study in my, in my city in Vancouver. And she had just received half a million in government funding to start it. And that is just amazing, isn't it? Mm. I mean, that, that people take these ideas and, and, and do their own thing with it. Uh, everyone has a role to, to play. Everyone has their own resources, contacts, talents, mm. etc. And I'm not really good at organizing stuff, so I'm not going to start a political party or anything. <laughs> that, that'll probably be a disaster. But everyone has a role to play, I believe. Yeah. And there are a lot of people galvanizing political movements as we speak, mm-hmm. such as uh, the DiEM25 movement in Europe. Yeah, that's um, a good example. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get to talk to Yanis Varoufakis about about his book um, awesome. soon, which will be great. But yeah, Edelson uh, to Room, right? Oh, it's really, really yeah, good. Yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. That's the one. Um, yeah. And uh, and it's just fascinating to get an insight into EU politics from the, the inside. Mm-hmm. It was always really interesting to hear when he was finance minister for Greece, um, his really fresh and, I guess, outsider perspective because he chose to remain an outsider yeah. in an insider's environment. So He is one of the great heroes of our time. I really believe that. It's yeah. just incredible. Truly, yeah. Uh, yeah, so there is hope. There is hope with some people like that and hopefully we can continue inspiring them through research and writing and, and all of our talents. So thank you, Rutger, for writing this book and spending time with me today to talk about it. Thanks for having me. And that was my interview with Dutch historian Rutger Bregman and we were discussing the contents of his latest book. It's called Utopia for Realists and How We Can Get There. It's out through Bloomsbury Publishing. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.